Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening earned his Bachelor of Arts degree with distinction from the University of Virginia with a double major in history and Spanish, as well as his Doctor of Jurisprudence degree from the same institution. Born in the United States, Raphael Madden is the sixth of ten children of Cuban parents. At least one of his siblings is here, his sister, and his mother is here tonight. After several years in private law practice, he joined the U.S. Department of Justice in 1991, and became general counsel of the department's Office of Justice Programs in 2001. He has been an adjunct instructor of jurisprudence and constitutional law at Christendom College since 1996. Mr. Madden has served on several boards in the area. Most importantly, he is a member of the board of directors of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming Raphael Madden. Thank you. You know, you might wonder, so someone is going to be speaking about an important period in Irish history, and the person selected by the Institute of Catholic Culture has the name of Rafael Alberto Ramon José Patricio <laughs> de la Sagrada Familia. You know, what's going on here? Anybody who wants to talk about Irish history has a problem. And the problem is that there's nothing simple about Irish history. Uh, there's nothing simple at all. Uh, just when you say, okay, I think I understand, it turns out that you understand very little uh, because there's always seven or eight additional layers. And wait, who knew that they were over there? You know, why, what are those people doing? And oh, and they have an army too. Um, it, it never stops. So my problem tonight in giving this talk, is that uh, I could take any 20-year period and uh, talk for three hours, but I've been ordered not to do that. So um, I'm going to try to paint with a very broad brush. I'm going to endeavor not to get into too many details, uh, because if I do do that, it'll never end. Uh, even though I, I also urge you to study the subject because the details are fascinating, truly fascinating. I have also been accused of uh, starting way back before getting to my point. And if I don't do that here, I think that no one will understand what's going on. So I have to go back a little bit. But in an effort to discipline myself, I actually put all of the history part just on one page. Uh, everything else, we'll see. It has been speculated by historians, among them Paul Johnson, an English Catholic historian, that a big difficulty in Irish history is that Ireland never developed uh, a national monarchy. 
there were kings in the provinces and uh, sub-kings under them. England had something like that. In a period known as the Heptarchy, there were seven kingdoms. But eventually, uh, in England, one of those kingdoms, the kingdom of Wessex, eventually uh, absorbed, conquered, married over into uh, the other ones, and ended up being England. Um, Many, many, many centuries later, they kind of grabbed Scotland in the same way, or perhaps arguably the other way around, since the King of Scotland became King of England. But in Ireland, there was no big monarchical institution, which means that everybody could come in and put their little finger into Ireland and start poking and pulling and pushing and prodding. And all of Ireland never could muster up a defense. You'd get these people over there, maybe allied with those people over here, and they'd put up a good fight. But against an entire nation's army, they never were able to overcome the onslaught. And so the the history of Ireland, even before the first Englishmen come over, they're called Normans because it was Norman England, but even before that, you have Vikings coming into Uh, Irish settlements and and founding Irish cities. In the 1100s, King Henry II of England claims the lordship of Ireland. Uh, And he did so in part through a papal document, but also in part through the fact that an English earl, the Earl of Clare, known as Strongbow, had come over and had married the daughter and heiress of the King of Leinster, and was setting himself pretty much to be king of a very large part of Ireland. And the king of England said, wait a minute, one of my uh, subordinates is setting himself up to be an independent king. Let's just end this right now, shall we? And what you have is, over the course of centuries, a pattern of English armies coming over, doing some destruction or conquering or pacifying this, that, or the other part of Ireland. Never all of it. Never even close for many centuries. And usually leaving some settlers. Now, some of those settlers eventually became much more Irish than the Irish. The Fitzgerald family. It's it's a Welsh family. They came over with Strongbow. Uh, The Walshes, the Sherlocks, the Wises. I mean, these are all families you would say, oh, well, of course they're Irish. And of course they are. They, you know, I'm going to say, after eight or nine hundred years, I think you could say, yeah, I think they're in. <laughs> um, but you know, they came over with those initial waves, and of course they intermarried with the local Irish, and they identified with the Irish, and they long forgot their uh, English past, and they became Irishmen. And what you have is then right around Dublin, an area of almost direct English control. And then outside of that, you have an area where uh, there's a large swath of Ireland that's controlled by these sort of Anglo-Irish, perfectly Catholic, this is the high medieval period, lords, and uh, they have become quite Irish in dress, uh, in customs, in language. And, uh, And then beyond that, you have the part where in the extreme west, in the extreme south, and in the extreme north, 
very little penetration by England. And uh, the English crown is always saying, how come Ireland never produces tax revenue for us? You know, they're just always troubled. How come it's not profitable? That's because they only had a little piece of it, but they claimed all of it. Big trouble comes. Big, big trouble comes for the first time when Henry VIII launches the Protestant revolt in England. For the first time, you get a distinctly different note. Because when we talk about, well, what are the English doing in Ireland? Well, what were the Normans doing in England? And I mean, everybody was somewhere else, right? The Visigoths show up in the middle of Spain. Um, so this happens. But they eventually settle down, and they, they become one with the people who are there. The new English, the people who come in after Henry, and the government policies starting with Henry, begin the imposition of an alien faith on the Irish people. That was completely different. And it creates, uh, initially, he knows he can't get away with much, so he's content with one diocese. And even there, the bishop says, all of you Catholic priests are, are, are not allowed to say Mass, okay? Don't. No, really, don't. But they continue to do so. It's like, okay, thank you, right. Mm-hmm. But under Elizabeth, uh, his fell daughter, particularly towards the end of her reign, uh, she sends fearsome armies into Ireland. And they knock out, they knock the stuffing out of most of the Irish uh, warrior aristocratic class, the ones who could fight back, leaving the, you know, the mass of the Irish people ultimately defenseless. You know, we're accustomed to thinking of, oh, well, they're the lords over there, and then, you know, where are these other people over here, what do they have to do with the lords? Well, that's not true. Obviously, they're bad lords, they're also bad peasants, there's bad everything. There's plenty of sin to go around. But uh, what you found is that the, there was a lot of identification between the, the people that, that were on the lord's lands and the lord himself. And that gets knocked out. You end up having Protestant lords over most of the land of Ireland, and they don't care. I mean, the people exist to hew wood and draw water. It might, even, it might not even have been so bad, but most of those lords lived in England. They were absentee lords to boot. So what they had, they'd hire a steward, and he said, make sure you get me my profits. You know, when you, when you see people every day, you begin to notice, wow, they look like they're really starving. But when you don't see them at all, you don't notice that they're starving. By the end of the 1600s, I, I said under Elizabeth's reign, things change much for the worse, and all over Ireland. Um, in the reign of James, uh, her uh, cousin who becomes James VI of Scotland, who becomes James I of England, James Town in Virginia, his officials in Ireland are brutal. And uh, after the English Civil War, Oliver Cromwell, I'm sorry to mention his name while you've just had dinner, uh, uh, Oliver Cromwell sends an army, comes at the head of an army uh, to Ireland. You know, I mean, everybody remembers the massacre at Drogheda where, you know, the, the Catholic governor 
but he was an Englishman, uh, was beaten to death with his own wooden leg. And everyone in the city, the city was put to the sword and everyone in the city was killed. That'll teach you not to rebel. By the end of the 1600s, Catholics owned a slightly less than one-eighth of the farmland in Ireland. By 1860, it had dropped to less than a tenth. Uh, Catholics were not allowed to sit in Parliament. After 1727, they weren't allowed to vote for Parliament. You couldn't own a horse that was worth more than five pounds, and since horses typically were worth 15 pounds, what that meant is you didn't have a horse. Uh, you Catholics weren't allowed to bear arms. They weren't allowed to work at a gunsmith. They weren't allowed to hold military commissions. They weren't allowed to homeschool, and they weren't allowed to send their children to be schooled abroad. Uh, they weren't allowed to practice law. They weren't allowed to have a business that had more than two apprentices. They weren't allowed to purchase land from Protestants, although Protestants could purchase land from Catholics. Uh, they weren't allowed to buy more than two acres of land at a time. They weren't allowed to lend on a mortgage or receive a loan on a mortgage. They weren't allowed to pass land only to one heir. Now, you might think, well, that's good because now everybody gets some. The problem is then, you know, you have one farm that might be able to support a family, but when you divide it into 10 farms, uh, now none of them can support any families. And what you find is that over the course of the 1700s and early 1800s, Ireland, which produced all kinds of different crops, the, the, the landless Catholic tenantry begins to rely on only one crop, potatoes, because you could grow them on very small plots of land. You weren't allowed to even rent property for more than 31 years. Now, you might think, well, nowadays, you know, we have rents of a year or whatever, but often you, had, you used to have rents of 100 years, 200 years. Uh, 31 years meant they could constantly be raising the rents on you. This law was designed, oh, they also could not hold any governmental or professional, so met doctor, this kind of thing, uh, position. You know, the law was designed to keep Catholics out of the ruling class, to inhibit them from growing in the middle class, and to confine them to the lowest. Um, but despite all these laws, the people seem not to have been affected in terms of their faith. If you only became a Protestant, none of these disabilities would hit you. I'm like, okay. I, I'm sad to say it, but you know, it, it took the 1960s and 70s for the Irish to say, let's just chuck it and abandon the faith. But back when it hurt, they said, no. Far better to be Catholic than all of these other things, even if it means misery and even if it means death. Far better. And of course, they're right. Because, of course, you know, what's the price of not being miserable? It's a very easy price. We should all know it. I think, I don't know much about inflation, but I think it's about 30 pieces of silver. Uh, so you have a landless, grindingly poor peasantry ruled by a legally exclusive, because it wasn't just that there were Protestants up there, but eventually we'll get there. Uh -uh. I mean, the law prevented you from getting up there. Legally exclusive Protestant ruling class, and then a relatively small middle class, mostly Protestant, squeezed into the middle. Uh, English laws, by the way, were designed to keep Ireland poor, even the Protestants. So, for instance... English laws forbade the sale of Irish goods almost anywhere in the world other than England. But when they went to England, they were subject to a tariff. On the other hand, English goods could be sold anywhere in the world. And when they were sold in Ireland, 
no tariff could be imposed. This eliminated things like the Irish wool trade. Okay, I'm going to quote from a few writers of the period. Here you have Dean Swift, Gulliver's Travels. He was a Protestant clergyman in Dublin. He says, Ireland is the only kingdom I have ever heard of or read of, either in ancient or modern history, which is denied the liberty of exporting their native commodities wherever they please. Yet this privilege, by the superiority of mere power, is refused to us in the most momentous parts of commerce. Edmund Burke, a Protestant, a wonderful man, Catholic mother, Protestant father, they agreed that the daughters would be reared as Catholics and the sons would be reared as Protestants. But he is uh, among the most magnificent people who's ever lived in history. A wonderful man. Edmund Burke, aged 19, writes this. He's at Trinity College, Dublin. As you leave the town, Dublin, the scene grows worse and presents you with the utmost penury in the midst of a rich soil. Nothing perhaps shows it more clearly than that although the people have but one small tax of two shillings a year, when the collector comes for default of payment, he carries off such of their poor utensils as they're being forced to use denotes the utmost misery. So they, couldn't, they didn't have two shillings, so they would take their pots and pans or their chairs. Those he keeps until by begging or other shifts more hard, they can redeem them. Indeed, money is a stranger to these people. As for their food, it is notorious that they seldom taste bread or, milk or meat. Their diet in summer is potatoes and sour milk, because nobody wanted the sour milk. In winter, when something is, is required, they're worse still, living on some root made palatable only by a little salt when they can get it, accompanied by water. Their clothes are so ragged that they rather publish than conceal their own wretchedness. No, it is, it is a no uncommon sight to see half a dozen children run completely naked out of a cabin, that cabin being scarcely distinguishable from a dunghill. Let anyone take a survey of these Irish cabins and then say whether such a residence can be worthy of anything that challenges the title of home to a human creature. You enter, or rather you creep in, at a door or hurdles that are plastered in dirt. Uh, within, inside, if the smoke will permit you, you see men, women, children, dogs, and swine. Their furniture is much fitter to be lamented than described, such as a pot, a stool, perhaps a few wooden vessels, and a broken bottle. In this manner, all of the peasantry to a man live. I appeal to anyone who knows our country for the justness of this picture. He's, he's 19 years old. He's saying, this is horrible. This is perfectly horrible. And he's a member of the Protestant descendancy. But his mother was a Catholic. He never forgot it. He never forgot it. An Englishman coming through the city of Dublin in the 1780s says, a landlord in Ireland can scarcely invent an order which a servant, laborer, or cottager dares to refuse to execute. Nothing satisfies the landlord but an unlimited submission. Disrespect or anything tending towards disrespect he may punish with his cane or his horsewhip with the most perfect security. 
A poor man would have his bones broken if he offered to lift his hands in his own defense. Knocking down is spoken of in this country in a manner which makes an Englishman stare. By what policy the government in England can for so many years have permitted such an absurd system to be maintained in Ireland is beyond the power of plain sense to discover. You know, these are Protestants who are writing who said, this is terrible. Because they have consciences too. And they said, this is absolutely ghastly. It's easy to refer to the Protestants as though they were some mass. Well, they weren't. Perhaps mass was the wrong word to describe a Protestant. But the, um, there were, first of all, at least two groups in what we now call the six counties, or in the Northern Ireland, even though it's not the northernmost part of Ireland, mostly Presbyterian. And there you had not that many high lords. Uh, instead, you had mostly middle and working class, but ferociously anti-Catholic. In the rest of Ireland, constituting a slight majority of the Protestants overall, you had, they call them Church of, uh, of Ireland, but they're really... Anglicans. They're really Episcopalians here in the United States. And they were much more favorably disposed, perhaps not to the church, but they were closer to the land. Um, they tended not to be so uh, bitterly opposed to Catholics generally. And what you find is that the British government exploits the differences among the three groups, the mass of Catholics and then the differences between the two Protestants. And Ireland is always topsy-turvy. There's a series of rebellions against the English, and in the late 1800s, or excuse me, at the very beginning of the 1800s, the Irish parliament is dissolved. It dissolves itself through a horribly corrupt deal. And uh, instead, the people of Ireland, the electors of Ireland, no Catholics need apply, thank you, they get to vote for a certain number of seats for the British parliament in London, and a certain number of Irish lords get to be sit House of Lords, to represent Ireland. The Irish Parliament was thoroughly corrupt, and it was thoroughly in the hands of a group of people who understood that the job of the Parliament was to enrich themselves. But at least it was an Irish thing. Once it goes over to London, then everything gets driven by, you know, what are we supposed to do in India? Or what are we, you know, what are, how about the Navy? And Ireland kind of gets forgotten. One of the terrible things that happened was that the death of the Irish Parliament showed the world, and most importantly, showed the Catholics of Ireland. There was a promise made. Once the Parliament goes over to London, we will grant Catholic emancipation. We'll get rid of those laws that put burdens on Catholics. To his credit, William Pitt, the Prime Minister, attempted to do this, but he was defeated in London. And for 25 years, that, that promise was broken. What it showed was that the Protestants had a home to go to. The Protestants, particularly in Ulster, could always count on England, could always count on Britain. And so for the first time, nationalism no longer is an Irish thing. It's a Catholic thing. Because you find, you know, Dean Swift... He's a canon of the Protestant Cathedral of, of Dublin, but he's an Irish patriot. Starting now, Irish patriotism becomes a Catholic thing, mostly. There are 
personal, uh, there are personal exceptions. And so you begin to have sharp lines divided there. The Protestants want union with England. The Catholics want less of that. But what do I mean by less of that? Do they just want to have home rule again? We're allowed to have local laws, a little bit like devolution in Scotland a few decades ago? Or do we want to have total independence? Or do we want to have something kind of in between where maybe there's still the king, but it's a separate country and doesn't depend on the parliament in London? There's a turmoil in Ireland. What's the, you know, what is the political solution here? How are we, the vast majority of the Irish, ever going to get our country back? When we get to the economic problems in Ireland, when for the first time the potato blight uh, in force attacks the potato crop, all of the problems with Irish agriculture uh, land with a thud on the heads of the poor Irish people. The population of Ireland drops by 50% in five years. Four million people disappear. Many die. Uh, many emigrate. The population of Ireland took more than a century to get back to where it was in 1846. More than a century. Can you imagine? And the British government recognizes, for instance, you, you know, everybody knows that the London police are called Bobbies. That's because the police force was created by Sir Robert Peel. He was prime minister. He was a Tory. He was a conservative. When the Irish potato famine begins, he's the prime minister, and he says, we have to provide relief. And a lot of people say, why would we provide relief? He says, because it's the decent thing to do. He's a very devout Christian. Didn't like Catholics much. But he said, but they're human beings. You know, I, it, he asks once on the floor of parliament, are they not men? Sorry, ladies. I think he meant you too. But, um, you know, it's like, okay, so they're Catholics. You know, why, why does that impress me? They're human beings. But his government falls, and the Liberal Party says, oh, we're not going to provide any more relief. And two years, they do nothing. And the people of Ireland starve, literally starve. One of the great liberal peers, Lord Palmerston, he was notoriously short of money, but he provided a certain amount of money, partial fees, for his tenants to just be driven off the land so that you could farm more efficiently, to be driven off the land and sent to Canada. Um, when they arrived in Canada, they had so little clothing, there was no preparation for them. They were just dumped in Quebec. I think it was November. They had so little clothing that one woman had to be covered with a blanket because decency didn't allow her to be seen otherwise. Okay, we just, see ya. The Canadian people were horrified. And of course, by this time, there's a lot of Americans who are Irish, and they don't like this at all. And you begin to see a pattern of Americans funding Irish independence or Irish home rule movements. After the potato famine, things were never, ever, ever the same. The people of Ireland before were ground down, and they didn't like what was going on, and they remembered their past. But after the potato famine, they hated the landlords, the absentee landlords, and they begin to hate the British government. 
hate it with the passion of a hundred, with the fire of a hundred suns. And, you know, it becomes a tinderbox. Over the course of the later 19th century, the British government says, well, if we can improve the economic situation in Ireland, maybe that hatred will subside. And there began a series under both conservative and liberal governments of uh, land reform laws that largely succeeded. It was slow in coming, but it largely succeeded by around 1914, about a little more than 50% of the land in Ireland had gone back to the hands of the Catholics who farmed that land. That's a tremendous achievement. But by this time, they had, the people had gotten a taste for it. This government doesn't really support us. I'm glad they're doing these things, but we want more. And it initially starts with a campaign for home rule. And home rule is attempted in the 1880s and is defeated. It's attempted in the early 1900s and it's defeated. Eventually, home rule passes the British Parliament through a spectacular series of parliamentary actions in 1914. So there's home rule for Ireland. And World War I breaks up. And the British government says, okay, everybody knows this war is only going to last a few weeks. So we're going to suspend home rule until after the war's over. In the meantime, everybody, including you Irish, you want to volunteer to be in the British Army? And many Irish do volunteer. Many of them were so poor, they did so so that they could have some kind of means of sustaining their families at home. And they served with terrific gallantry uh, on the Western Front, dying in horrible numbers, but everybody died in horrible numbers. So we have, on one side, the British government successfully is moving towards land reform and improving the economic condition of the Irish. But politically, everything comes 25 to 40 years too late. By the time the Irish people get home rule, so many of them have said, home rule, we want independence. You know, they had become radicalized during all those years of quiet or of frustration. On the 24th of April, 1916, the Irish Republican Brotherhood made the following proclamation. Irishmen and Irish women, in the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland, through us, summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. Having organized and trained her manhood through her secret revolutionary, revolutionary organization, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, through her open military organizations, the Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army, having patiently perfected her discipline, having resolutely waited for the right moment to reveal itself, she now seizes that moment. And supported by her exiled children in America and by gallant allies in Europe, and relying in the first on her own strength, she strikes in full confidence of victory. We declare the right of the people of Ireland to the ownership of Ireland and to the unfettered control of Irish destiny, to be sovereign and indefeasible. The long usurpation of that right by a foreign people and government has not extinguished the right, nor can it ever be extinguished except by the destruction of the Irish people. In every generation, the Irish people have asserted their right to national freedom and sovereignty. Six times during the past 300 years, they have asserted it in arms standing on that fundamental right and again asserting it in arms in the face of the world, we hereby proclaim the Irish Republic as a sovereign, independent state, 
We pledge our lives and the lives of our comrades in arms to the cause of its freedom, of its welfare, and of its exaltation among the nations. The Irish Republic is entitled to, and hereby claims, the allegiance of every Irishman and Irish woman. The Republic guarantees civil and religious liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to all its citizens, and declares its resolve to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and of all its parts, cherishing the children of the nation equally. I'm thinking the recent abortion decisions in Ireland, cherishing all the children of the nation equally and oblivious of the differences carefully fostered by an alien government which have divided the majority from the minority in the past. Until our arms have brought the opportune moment for the establishment of a permanent national government representative of the whole people of Ireland and elected by the suffrages of all our men and women, the provisional government hereby constituted will administer the civil and military affairs of the Republic in trust for her people. We place the cause of the Irish Republic under the protection of the Most High God, whose blessing we invoke upon our arms, and we pray that no one who serves that cause will dishonor it by cowardice, inhumanity, or rapine. In this supreme hour, the Irish nation must, by its valor and its discipline, and by the readiness of its children to sacrifice themselves for the common good, prove itself worthy of the august destiny to which it is called. It's signed by seven people, uh, every one of whom would be dead within uh, about a month and a half after this. The Irish Republican Brotherhood seizes a number of government buildings, mostly in Dublin, but in a few places across the country. The British government, fighting a war, a desperate war, against uh, the central powers, mostly Germany, on the Western Front, and seeing this huge rebellion right here, uh, uh, fearing that it's about to break out, they pounce. And they do something that no one expected. Dublin is a major city. They send, they didn't send tanks, but they send artillery and begin shelling buildings. No one expected that the British would treat the city, you know, the same way they would treat the city of a foreign, of a hostile power, like in wartime. You know, why is, it a, why is it a military action, not a police action? Why are you destroying? No, people were horrified. They've destroyed the entire center of the city by just destroying whole buildings, killing uh, civilians right and left. About 260 of those killed in the week or so of fighting were civilians. More than 2,600 were wounded. At least 2,200 were civilians. It was awful. And in an effort to try to prevent the bloodshed, the church sends a number of priests to go. The, the people who are in the Irish Republican Brotherhood would allow the priests in, and they would attempt to get some kind of a ceasefire. Eventually, it was clear that the people of Dublin were not rising. They, so they surrendered. And the British said, well, we'll just execute the leaders, not everyone. And then they proceeded to pronounce sentences of death on hundreds of them. Those sentences weren't carried out. Sixteen people were executed. The thing is that they, the British proceeded by court-martial, and they proceeded through procedures that later were ruled by British courts. Of course, by this time, everyone was dead. Later were ruled by British courts to have been illegal. 
One of the interesting things about these people, remember, the Irish people did not join the Easter Rising. The people of Ireland, by and large, said, why are you doing this? We were promised home rule. Let's just wait till the war to get over. Let's see if England will behave. And the British government behaves brutally towards these 16. And what's interesting is that all of them, some of them were Catholics. Some of them were not. One of them, at least, was a communist, an atheist. Every single one of them dies in the arms of the church. Every last one of them. The priests would, say, would come out and they would say, I gave him his first communion, which was also his viaticum. Uh, you know, he, I heard his confession for six hours. The, the British initially didn't want to allow priests in to see the prisoners. And a number of the priests said, they said, I shall stand in the street and proclaim that you are not letting me in to see a, a member of my flock. And so the British let him in. And soon they could go in and out. James Connolly, who was a, a communist, on the day before he died, he said, he asked, the priest had come to visit him every day, and he said, Father, I'd like to make a confession and I'd like to receive last rites. Patrick Pierce, when he heard this, because Patrick Pierce was one of the uh, leaders of the rebellion, his only words were, thank the Lord. This was the one thing that I was anxious about. I've been praying for it desperately. He's about to face his own death, and he was more concerned about having this man die in the arms of the church. Every one of them. Roger Casement. He was an Anglo-Irish knight. Uh, those of you who've read The Heart of Darkness, he was one of the people who exposed the brutality that was going on in the Congo. A brilliant British diplomat. But he sided with Ireland. And he receives, you know, his, his first communion was his viaticum. He was taken to England for his trial uh, and was executed there. But he wanted to be in Ireland. He gave a speech from the dock. The judges in England, of course, my lord. I may say, my lord, at once that I protest against the jurisdiction in this court, in my case, on this charge. And the argument that I'm going to read is addressed not to the world, but to my own countrymen. Loyalty is a sentiment, not a law. It rests on love, not on restraint. The government of Ireland by England rests on restraint and not on law. Since it demands no love, it can evoke no loyalty. With all respect, I assert this case is, this court is to me an Irishman, not a jury of my peers to try me in this vital issue, for it is patent to every man of conscience that I have a right, an indefeasible right, if tried at all, to under the statute of high treason to be tried in Ireland before an Irish court by an Irish jury. This court, this jury, the, the public opinion of this country, England, cannot but be prejudiced in various varying degrees against me, most of all in times of war. I did not land in England. I landed in Ireland. It was to Ireland I came, to Ireland I wanted to come, and the last place I desired to go was England. But for the Attorney General of England, there is only one place, England. There is no Ireland, there's only the law of England.
No right of Ireland. The liberty of Ireland and of Irishmen is to be judged by the power of England. Yet for me, the Irish outlaw, there is a land of Ireland, a right of Ireland, and a charter for all Irishmen to appeal to in the last resort, a charter that even the very statutes of England cannot deprive us of. If I did wrong in making that appeal to Irishmen to join me in an effort to fight for Ireland, it is by Irishmen and by them alone that I can be rightly, rightly judged. They alone are competent to decide my guilt or innocence. If they find me guilty, the statute may affix the penalty, but the statute does not override or annul my right to seek judgment at their hands. This is so fundamental a right, so natural a right, so obvious a right, that it is clear that the Crown were aware of it when they brought me by force and stealth from Ireland to this country. It was not I who landed in, in, in England, but the Crown who dragged me here, away from my own country to which I had turned with a price upon my head, away from my own countrymen whose loyalty is not in doubt and safe from the judgment of my peers, from whose judgment I do not shrink. I admit of no judgment but theirs. I accept no verdict save at their hands. I assert from this doc that I am being tried here, not because it is just, but because it is unjust. Place me before a jury of my countrymen, be they Protestant or Catholic, Unionist or Nationalist, Sinn Féin or Orangeman, and I shall accept the verdict and bow to the statute and all of its penalties. If they adjudge me guilty, then guilty I am. It is not I who am afraid of their verdict. It is the crown. If this be not so, why fear the test? I fear it not. I demand it as my right. That, my lord, is the condemnation of English rule, English law, English government in Ireland, that it dare not rest on the will of the Irish people. But it exists in defiance of that will. It is a rule derived not from right, but from conquest. And conquest, my lord, gives no title. It exists over the body. It fails over the mind. Ireland has outlived the failure of all her hopes. And yet she still hopes. Ireland has seen her sons, I and her daughters too, suffer from generation to generation, always for the same cause, meeting always the same fate, and always at the hands of the same power. And always a fresh generation has passed on to withstand the same oppression. For if English or authority be omnipotent as power that reaches to the very ends of the, of the earth, Irish hope exceeds the dimensions of that power. It excels its authority and renews with each generation the claims of the last. In Ireland alone in the 20th century is loyalty held to be a crime. If loyalty be something less than love and more than law, then we have enough of such loyalty for, Irish, for Ireland or Irishmen. If we are to be indicted as criminals, to be shot as murderers, or to be imprisoned as convicts because our offense is that we love Ireland more than that we love our lives, then I know not what virtue resides in any offer of self-government, home rule, held out to brave men on such terms. Self-government is our right, a thing born in us at birth, a thing no more to be doled out to us or withheld from us by another people than the right to life itself, than the right to feel the sun or smell the flowers or to love our own kind. It is only from the convict that these things are held with, are withheld for crimes committed or proven. And Ireland, who has wronged no man, has injured no land, 
has sought no dominion over others. Ireland is treated today among the nations of the world as though she were a convict criminal. If it be treason to fight against such an unnatural faith as this, then I am proud to be a rebel and shall cling to my rebellion with the last drop of my blood. When all your rights have become only an accumulated wrong, then to live in such a, in such a state as this, it is better for men to fight and die without right uh, than to live in such a state as this. Anyway, love that speech. The Irish people were horrified. And they said, why are all these people being killed? And the priests come out and they say, he died like a saint. A number of them were wounded. They were strapped to their chairs and shot. I've never seen a person die a more holy death. And the people say, why were these holy men being shot? It became this cause of Ireland becomes a holy cause. And people begin to identify with them. The British government took one thousand, more than a thousand Irish prisoners and transported them to Wales. And then the British government uh, began attempts to have conscription in order to send Irishmen to the front. Before that, it was just volunteers. In 1916 and 17, Sinn Féin, the independence movement, wins electoral victories hand over fist. 73 out of 100 seats go to Sinn Féin. And what do they do? We're not going to London. We'll assemble here. And so they assemble and they say, the Irish Republic was proclaimed uh, in 1916. We're the popular assembly of that. The British government passes a Home Rule Act. It's chaos, frankly. They come up with a, a different kind of Home Rule Act where some people will be elected by Ulster. Other ones will be from the South. The people in the South said, no, sorry, you don't seem to understand. We're out of here. And there is what is literally the War of Independence. It's essentially a guerrilla war. It lasts from 1918 until the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921. What's dreadful about this is that when the Catholics didn't go to London and the British passed a new Home Rule Act, they gave various concessions to the Ulstermen who were there. They were the only Irishmen present. So that when the Home Rule Act was scrapped, the Ulstermen said, well, we already have certain things, like an agreement that we don't have to go with the rest of Ireland. We six counties can stay. In the Anglo-Irish Treaty, um, uh, Sinn Féin, or the Irish Republicans, divide into two. Under Michael Collins, they say, it's better to get what we can now and we'll see what we can do about Ulster later. Uh, they were required to accept the monarchy, but have rule in Ireland and the separation of the six counties. Under Eamon de Valera, he says, I, I reject all, all of that. And we begin one of the saddest stories. From 1921 to 1923 is the Irish Civil War, where... You have those people who want total independence for Ireland and those who are willing to accept the Irish free, straight, free state at the hands of the crown. And the, um, at the end of the war, the free staters, the ones who accepted the treaty, won. 
But the ones who didn't accept the treaty eventually make their way into government over the 1930s, and they pass Irish statutes that get rid of the monarchy, that get rid of the oath of allegiance. And what we have left is the six counties of Ulster. The Irish Republican Army, by the end of the 1940s, turns all of its attention to trying to defeat the British in Ulster. It's a horrible, horrible, ghastly mess. Um, and it comes from a policy of doing everything possible to foment division uh, pursued over six or seven hundred years. Now, the poem, I'm going to close with it. This is written by William Butler Yeats. He himself was a Protestant, but he knew many of the people who died. There were 16 who died uh, in the Easter Rising or 16 who were executed after the Easter Rising. Uh, there's an interesting thing about the poem. Uh, there are four strophes, uh, because the Easter Rising was on, in April, the fourth month. Uh, two of the strophes have 16 lines, 16 executed. It was 1916. And two of them have 24 lines, because it was April 24th. I have met them at the close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among gray 18th century houses. I have passed with a nod of the head or polite, meaningless words, or have lingered a while and said polite, meaningless words, and thought before I had done of a mocking tale or a jibe to please a companion around the fire at the club, being certain that they and I but lived where motley is worn, all changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. That woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill, her, night in her nights in argument, until her voice grew shrill. What voice more sweet than hers when young and beautiful she rode to Harriers? This man had kept a school and rode our winged horse. This other, his helper and friend, was coming into his force. He might have won fame in the end. So sensitive his nature seemed, so daring and sweet his thought. This other man I had dreamed a drunken, vainglorious lout. He had done most bitter wrong to some who were near my heart. Yet I number him in this song. He, too, has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He, too, has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Hearts with one purpose alone through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. The horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud, minute by minute change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute. A horse hoof slides in the brim and the horse plashes within it where long-legged moorhens dive and hens to moorcocks call. Minute by minute they live. The stone's in the midst of all. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice? That is heaven's part, our part, to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. What is it but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith. 
for all that is done and said. We know their dream enough to know they dreamed and are dead. But what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? McDonough and McBride and Connolly and Pierce. Now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Madden. This talk does not stand in isolation. It began intentionally with our fall quarter talks. For those who are new, everything that happens at an institute event is part of a, uh, a, a connected and integrated curriculum. So I want to recommend a couple talks that would be of interest to you that lay the foundation towards uh, tonight. So if you are on our email list, you'll receive these links, but I also want to mention the names of the talks uh, here. First was Out of the Mist, The Rise of the Ancient Celtic People by Professor Brendan McGuire. Following that was a talk by Dr. O'Donnell titled The Island of Salvation, The Birth of Celtic Christianity. I bring this to your attention to, because tonight represents a culmination of a year-long theme. Uh, and there are many other talks that happened throughout this year. There's a talk by Joseph Pierce on the prayer of the breastplate of St. Patrick. There's a talk by Father Fisher on the um, saints in Ireland that was titled Pilgrims for Christ. So there's a whole kind of narrative that followed along, and I uh, encourage you to explore. If you haven't already, if you've been with us along the journey, then uh, you can pass those along to your friends. But I mentioned those for your interest. A while ago, also, Dr. O'Donnell gave a talk, Swords Around the Cross, Catholic Ireland, and the Nine Years' War, which might be of interest to you. We're going to kick Q&A off with a little bit of analysis of the uh, poem, 1916, uh, that uh, Raphael wanted to do. So we'll do that, and then we'll uh, start taking some questions. I'll be, uh, I'll be brief, but it occurred to me that I might just point out a few things. I, I pointed a little bit out about the, the, the number of verses, but... Um, you know, there's, of course, he ends three of the, of the strophes with, uh, you know, all changed utterly and a terrible beauty is born. But at the beginning, it's all very light. You know, you see them in the street. You nod. You know, people, just polite nothings, meaningless words. You know, we think of Motley Crue, kind of a variety of things like this. It's just where multicolored stuff, utterly light. At the end, it's where green is worn. You know, so the third line from the end is where green is worn. All are changed. In Ireland, this is different. He's referring to different people. He wrote this a few months after the, when I say a few months, I mean two or three months. I don't remember exactly, but I think it was done by September of 1916. And he knew personally many of the people. And so he starts without naming them. That woman's days, Countess Markovitz, uh, it was an Irish woman who had married a Polish count, um, and she was a fiery supporter of Irish independence. Uh, he was, uh, he, he had known her when she was young. Uh, she would run and, uh, with horses after, uh, hares, after rabbits. 
And so there's, you know, what voice more sweet than hers when young and beautiful she rode to Harriers? But as a result of working so long for Irish independence, her voice grew shrill. You know, he, he laments that this beautiful woman who he clearly admires um, had grown hard as a result of this. Then that man, this man had kept a school, and he rode our winged horse. A winged horse is Pegasus, and Pegasus is a symbol of poetry or poets. So he's saying this man kept a school and was a poet, Patrick Pierce. Uh, this other, his helper and friend, was coming into his force. He might have won fame in the end. Uh, he's referring to Thomas McDonough, uh, a poet himself, very young man. Um, the people who died, I mean, Joseph Mary Plunkett was, I think, 28 or 9 years old. Um, his fiance he married seven hours before his death. Um, he was the son of Count Plunkett. His wife, Grace, never remarried. Um, but she went, the jailers didn't want to let her in. She went in a wedding dress with the priest, and the priest knocked on the door, and they let her in, and she was married through the bars. You know, I mean, these are the things that rip your heart out. And every one of them, I'm giving my life for Ireland. I'm giving my life for a Catholic Ireland. Uh, the next one, this other man I had dreamed, a drunken, vainglorious lout. John McBride. John McBride had uh, succeeded in winning a woman whom uh, Yates had sought to marry. And he had been uh, a, a cruel husband. He had not been a good husband. And so Yates saw this woman that he loved suffer at the hands of this man uh, he drank very heavily, and when he was in his cups, bad things happened. And so here he's saying, that man, this other man, I had dreamed a drunken, vainglorious lout. He had done the most bitter wrong to some who are near my heart. Yet I number him in the song. He has been transformed utterly. You know, it's, it's, it's magnificent uh, there. Um, Anyway, it, you know, when he says, for England may keep faith, you know, was, it, was their death in vain? Because England might give us home rule. Maybe everything will happen. Maybe they didn't need to die. He doesn't know. This is right after. Um, but then he said, you know, at the end he says, but we know their dreams. Enough to know that they dreamt, you know, the, 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 the dream that they dreamt was beautiful. And he says, if they loved Ireland so much that it bewildered them until they died, I can still admire that. And so he says, so I'll name them in song. And he gives the name of four. Now and in time to be. So now and forever, wherever green is worn, wherever there are Irish, they are changed, changed utterly. Terrible beauty is born. It's a magnificent poem. Thank you, Mr. Madden. We've got a question in the back by John. Yes. Yes, uh, Professor. So I have a question about the church's role in the rising and then the War of Independence. It was my understanding that uh, the church was skeptical of both uh, events on the 
ground the just war theory grounds that it failed the necessary condition of having a reasonable chance of success. Is this understanding correct? And if so, how are we to evaluate the church's posture uh, with a century of uh, hindsight? Thank you. Sure, it's an excellent question. Uh, The church is, when you say the church, the Irish bishops and the Irish clergy, the bishops were wary of more bloodshed uh, because lots of innocent people die when bullets fly. And the church was worried that if the uh, movements towards home rule, you know, it was hopeful that home rule might be enough. You know, everyone will will have enough at that point. Uh, We can spare uh, having so much bloodshed and Also, um, if it isn't enough, maybe it'll lead the way to enough. You know, we can do this gently. Let's be patient. The church did not like the Easter Rising, but then again, very few people in Ireland did. The church, though, recognized that every one of the people who was put under arrest was a daughter or son of the church, at least in potency. And therefore, the church stepped right up to provide them with the sacraments wherever possible. You ask about what did animate a few of the bishops, and by the way, two of the bishops were were strongly were were, were Fenians. I mean, they were very, very much in favor of independence. Um, but the the just some just war argumentation was put forth at the time. But in all of these questions, those are prudential judgments. In the they judged that the likelihood of success that the conditions for a just war uh, weren't present, but they were wrong, weren't they? They're certainly entitled to our affection and our respect because they're not our enemies, after all, or our opponents. They, we have to suppose that they desire the same thing that we do. But their judgments on these questions cannot substitute for ours. Uh, we must exercise our own consciences. We must educate ourselves about whatever the questions are, and we have to satisfy ourselves in our own consciences, well-formed, as to what's the right thing to do. And we can't just say, well, he said it was the wrong thing, so that's it. Now, this is different from a church teaching. The church says, all right, murder is sinful. Okay. Uh, But uh, that's, that's an absolute teaching. Now, whether or not something may or may not be uh, done in a particular case often will involve prudential judgments. And those, I'm sorry, there's no uh, letting you off the hook conscience-wise. Those belong to you and your conscience. And for those, you will answer, as will I. Won't it be fun? Before Almighty God. Michael's uh, writing in online. Michael asks, he's wondering if Sir Robert Peel and and the Tory party Uh, if they had been successful in their votes in England to provide supplies for the Irish people, do you think that the Irish would not have rebelled? Well, Sir Robert Peel's government only had, I think, the first year, year and a half or so of the general famine. There are always, I hate to say, oh, there's always some famines. But I mean, nowadays we're just better at agriculture than we were before. So there would be drought over there, but not generally. Or there would be some kind of plague or, or infestation of some fungus or something over there, but not over here as well. Um, his government uh, did, in fact, attempt 
uh, relief, and they were largely successful. Of course, the government's always going to be behind the ball, not ahead of it. Uh, but they were largely uh, successful, and they at least got through one season okay. And I say that, you know, I say okay, but of course people died. But they, they, they did their best. I do think that after the, the Great Famine, um, things were never the same. And so I believe that had, during all the time, that the, the majority of the people of Ireland were literally starving to death. The British, or the, the absentee landlords, were exporting grain from Ireland. Okay? They couldn't be, it's more profitable to sell it abroad. Because it's not like these people, these starving people could pay us for it. You know, what's the lack of humanity? Now, I think it's because they were far away. You know, even nasty people, if you see that the person in front of you is literally dropping dead, you're going to do something. I mean, you'd have to be awfully hard not to. But when you're in London, and they're hundreds of miles away in Ireland, you say, oh, well, I hear that, but it's a statistic. I'm surely it's not my people. It doesn't affect me. So I do think that had there been energetic Christian responses perhaps that horrible change or that, that huge change in attitude would not have happened. It's my thought. Do you know what the rationale was for Ireland remaining neutral during World War II? Uh, the rationale goes by the name of Eamon de Valera. Having made very clear that Ireland is an independent country, he said, okay, fine. I will show that we're independent. We won't go into war just because England did. Now, he was criticized because he made a few sort of gestures. He would pay sort of formal diplomatic courtesies to the German ambassador in Dublin. And he's been criticized for that. But uh, Irish state papers have come out and have shown that he actually was providing more assistance. Qualified, but he was providing more assistance to the Allies uh, than he's been given credit for. Now. It was limited, but he was, I don't think he was at all happy at the idea of Hitler's winning. There's a question coming in from Michael. He writes, an Irishman named, uh, I, I'm sorry if I pronounce this incorrectly, but Meager, I believe, fought in the American Civil War. As I recall, his goal after the war was to recruit Irish veterans to go to Canada and fight the British. The effort was beaten back by the U.S. government. Would you comment on Meager and his efforts? Well, I, I know that there's at least one such attempt. What's, what's funny is that uh, a lot of the fighting, um, I, I, maybe funny isn't the right word, but a lot of the fighting that was done by Irishmen against the British was done by veterans of World War I. <laughs> you know, they, they had learned how to fight really well um, in the field. Um, yeah, it's an interesting thing and a real tribute to Ireland that it's very hard to get Ireland out of Irishmen's heads. And so when they come to the United States, often uh, they would look for ways to show advantage to Ireland. Canada, for some reason, seems to have been in the 19th century the, the, the dream of a number of people in the United States. Well, if we can just take Canada, then we can do this or that thing. And those always fail. And the Canadians, I think, have every right to be quite peeved about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, these are always going to be hopeless 
what we, I think, can appreciate is the desire to do something for Ireland. Great. Thank you, Mr. Madden. We'll end with this question from Maureen. Well, I'm over here. Oh, I've received sorry. pretty much all of my education on Ireland at O'Connell's Pub in Old Town, so it stimulates my curiosity as to who Daniel O'Connell was and ah. why he was so important in Irish history. Well, Daniel O'Connell, I think everyone would have said, was a great man. I will say that he's a great man. Uh, it's fashionable among uh, some modern historians who like to sort of pick nits and pick at all kinds of people and everybody's a failure uh, to criticize him for one thing or another. But what did he do? He said, okay, we Irish have tried over and over and over and over to rise up, to rebel, to go against the law. Let's not do that this time. Let's stay within the law, but let's do everything possible to push at the, at the edges of the law, to push on the margins. So he, he gets the bishops to approve uh, the announcement of something that was some, goes by various names. It's called a Catholic tax. Every Catholic household that could afford it would pay a penny a month. And that money would go together and it would, be, it would uh, fund the activities of something called the Catholic Association. And the Catholic Association would either sue in court or would attempt to get somebody, okay, let's put somebody else up for Parliament. Can't be a Catholic because that's not allowed, but he won't be a nasty person. And so they elect somebody, and that person goes off to Parliament and in London, and he starts saying things like, you know, I have, I'm making the number completely up, I have 6,000 people in my borough, and 12 of them are allowed to vote. Don't you think that's a little stupid? Um, and eventually, what happens, if I remember my facts correctly, O'Connell stands for election. He's not eligible, and he's voted in. And then you have the British government. Well, we are all in favor of democracy, and oh, well. So they were embarrassed into... Catholic emancipation. They were embarrassed. And I will say this. I, I, I hope I don't sound like I'm anti-English here. I don't know that I've said much that was pro-English. Um, King George V, by the way, he spoke often to the, to the prime minister and he deplored the harsh measures that were being done. He said, I don't have a solution, but this isn't it. I mean, he says, these are my subjects as well, and you seem to forget that. But the O'Connell, he believed that the English people, by and large, were decent, and that they could be shamed into doing the right thing if it was only brought to them. And so the idea that somehow or other, um, you know, if we could show that we aren't violent, so what did he do? He would have these massive rallies, and in the rally they would say, we're going to do that. No, never anything violent. Never, ever, ever. We're going to, you know, stand outside the polling booth and glower when the six Protestant voters get to go in. You know, and all we are just stand there and stare at them. And well, the police will try to disperse us. We'll stand on the sidewalk. You know, we won't, we won't cross the street. We'll do everything like this. And, 
And then he says, and now let's end the meeting with a loyal address to the queen. And so they all end with, you know, God save the queen, um, you know, a toast to Queen Victoria. And so what are they going to say? So he was very, very successful at getting Catholic emancipation in terms of voting, in terms of elimination of almost all of the civil disabilities in the law, not only in Ireland, but in England, and also in allowing Catholics to sit in Parliament. That is no small thing. That is no small thing at all. It was tremendous. And, you know, the, the whole move the Parliament over to London ended up creating a big problem for the British Parliament. Because once Catholics got the vote, they began to vote in a block. And so what you have is 60 or 70 votes in the House of Commons, and they could say, do you want us to take our votes to the Conservatives or to the Liberals? You tell me. Which one of you is going to offer me the better deal? And that is a function of O'Connell. So there, is that something of an answer? Yes, that's great. Thank you so much, Mr. Madden. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.